Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing services, drives your overall business success. Because they believe that today's online environment is your best friend and your greatest opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. It's been 30 years since 1992, according to my abacus, and some of the greatest television shows of the past 30 years all came out that year. I thought it'd be interesting, Ro. We've done this a couple times in the past, and the listeners, and by the way, thanks everybody for listening and subscribing and sharing and all that. They really seem to enjoy kind of going back and not looking just at anniversaries of seminal movies, but also TV shows. So I'm going to walk you through some of these, okay. Ro, and just you know, give me your reaction so we're talking about shows that debuted in 1992 and in most cases had a lasting impact on the pop culture. For example, MTV's The Real World. This is the true story. True story. Of seven strangers <laughs> picked to live in a loft and have their lives taped to find out what happens <laughs> what? when people stop being polite. Could you get the phone? And start getting real. The Real World. It changed the world, that show. And not for the better, I might add, but it was it combined everything that we do now. It combined The Bachelor with like Big Brother, yep. with I Gotta Go Live in a House, Desert Island stuff, Survivor. Take My Wife, Please, whatever. Yeah, it really did. You're absolutely right. And the real world, for people who don't remember or don't know, it was, they would talk about like, I think it was seven or eight college-age kids, and they go, and when things start getting real, the real world, <laughs> right. MTV. And I, I do believe the first year kind of felt real because these kids didn't, 19, 20, 21 years old, they were all in a house together. And yeah, they did the same thing, as you mentioned. They've been doing now for 30 years. Let's get the, you know, the gay kid, the African-American activist, the right-winger, the shy person, right. oh, a couple possible but romances. But they were all hot or interesting, and they put them in a room Yeah, and they were. They're together. artistic types, and they put them in a really cool designer house in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or Boston. You know, they would go from city to city. At least for the first year or two, I felt like we were getting some semblance of a documentary. Mm -hmm. By the third year, you, you know, everybody was trying. I'm going to be the breakout star. I'm going to quit, which has, as you mentioned, trickled through every reality show since then. Where it's the last thing it is is real, but you you cannot you know deny the impact of MTV's The Real World. Patient Put a bunch zero. of people together in a house and see what happens with them. Here's another one for you: Dateline NBC. Dateline NBC premiered in 1992. And at the time, you know, we obviously we had, you know, other news magazines and stuff, but they weren't afraid to go salacious and sensational from the start, right? Almost immediately, because they were competing with, it's going to sound crazy when I say this, but there was 60 Minutes, yeah. which had been on for decades prior to that. Yep, yep. And then there was 2020 yep. on ABC. Exactly. And Primetime on ABC, which was just starting right around then, too. Yeah. And then Dateline was going to be the NBC alternative to all of those they just they they found a hit with predators and missing suburban murders and missing kids and they always had you know anchors that had great gravitas even though they'd be often talking about some horrible you know as you mentioned abduction or a cult they love the cult kidnappings oh, yeah. yeah or you know the kid that would disappear for seven years and come back and the suburban murders and actually some of these Dateline shows from the nineties have now been turned into current 
miniseries, a right. limited dramatic series. Right. Uh, we're going to talk about a show, a series called Candy uh, in, in the next segment here. Big impact. Now, here's one for you. Uh, Jay Leno made his debut on The Tonight Show in 1992. Johnny Carson said his farewell became The Tonight Show with Jay Leno in 1992. Live from the NBC studios in Burbank, California, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Featuring Bradford Marsalis and The Tonight Show Band. Tonight, Jay welcomes Billy Crystal. The music of Shanice. Economic correspondent Robert Krolwich. I'm Ed Hall. And now, Jay Leno. Remember how monumental it was when a late night host, because there were really a handful yeah. of them, would change jobs or all of a sudden Fox would have a late night show or whatever it was. Arsenio, like, Joan Rivers, Chevy Chase, yeah. Magic Johnson. You know, they'd get like a year or two. Well, Arsenio had a pretty good run, but yeah. But the Tonight Show. It's different now. Listen, and I guess Jimmy Fallon's the guy, right? But now it's really it's the Jimmy Fallon show, it's the James Corden show, whatever they want to call him. It's you know it's the Stephen Colbert. But James show. Corden just announced that he's, yeah, he's leaving, he's, and I, I think he's right. I think it's about time. You know, there's nobody else to get in the car and do the karaoke <laughs> with him. And they're uh, very hard shows to do. But back then it was Carson, and then it was Leno Letterman. I mean, there have been books, there have been miniseries done about that. It was a huge, huge thing. And you know, there's a lot of stuff that's been said about Jay Leno through the years. You know. Bro, that personally, he's been great to us, and I was on the show a ton. I will always say this, you know, when Roger Ebert got sick and we were trying to decide what to do, and we thought, oh, let's try some celebrity co-hosts. Jay Leno was the first one. He said, I'll do it, and he actually had us come out to California, and they built a replica of our set, uh, the, the Ebert and Roper balcony, across the street from Tonight Show lot because he couldn't come to Chicago because he was hosting the Tonight Show. Wow. And when they asked him, what would you like for this? He goes, if you guys just order a couple of pizzas, that'll be my payment. So I, you can look that up on YouTube. Recap the movies in this week's show. Two thumbs way up, Talladega Nights. Yeah. We split on Miami Vice. Two thumbs way up for Little Miss Sunshine. Big split on Shadow Boxer. He was wrong. And two <laughs> thumbs way up for the night listener. Oh, man, I'm trying to save some money from some people. Okay, soon, get back here and just kick his butt, will you? I, I'm not good enough to do it, but you know how to do it. Thank you so much, Jay. Okay, that's it for this week's show. And until next week, the balcony is closed. It was very bizarre to be reviewing movies with Jay Leno, but uh, he had a huge run numbers-wise. Oh, yeah. You know, the famous moment with Hugh Grant. Right. When he had been What were you thinking? Yeah, Yeah, what were you thinking? And, you know, to this day, I know Letterman and Leno kind of had rivalry, but, you know, the truth was Jay knew what he was doing. He was appealing to a more mainstream Middle of the road audience, and he carried NBC's late night numbers millions and millions of dollars. The crazy thing was, if you took Johnny Carson and you said, "Well, you can't have Johnny anymore, but you're gonna split him in half," <laughs> you got Letterman and Leno. Yeah, that's true. Because it's obviously what Carson did that was revolutionary in the 1960s mm-hmm. into the 1970s were those one-off bits. There was some really sardonic, funny, smart stuff that he did, but it also was appealing to central Nebraska, which is where he was from. Yeah. Yeah. He always knew how to, how to well, he was the master of all time. And you're, that's a great point you made because Letterman had the edginess because sometimes Johnny would get, you know, flirtatious or he'd get a little bit, you know, off color and kind of push it. And then Leno had the mainstream part. So they really were kind of, and listen, both of them, Leno and Letterman, would tell you that, that you know, they grew up on, on Carson. Let me run this one by you. Mm-hmm. Melrose Place. Oh, God. Was huge, though, for I a know. couple of years, right? That was like 
kind of bringing back the night. I mean, we'd had Dallas and all that stuff in the 70s and 80s, right? And then those were in Dynasty. They were considered like, eh, cobwebby grandma shows, right? And I don't know. If you got a cobwebby grandma, I, I apologize. And nothing against that. But, but you knew she was cobwebby. But the, but the nighttime soaps, right? They were, they were for an older demographic. And they were kind of these old-fashioned knots landing type of things. And Melrose Place, it was the same thing, except for they were all hot. Right. And 27. Right. It was a, a way of Fox reaching out. And finding a way yeah. to talk to a younger audience the same way that ABC had done. It was the exact same model ABC used in the 1960s to cut through. I'm going to run a couple more by you uh, in addition to shows, Ro. A couple of notable events that happened in 1992 on television. We were just talking about talk shows. And this was a key moment in the presidential campaign when Bill Clinton played the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. And all of a sudden, people were like, this guy's cool. And Bill Clinton defeated George Bush in the presidential election. But before all that happened, this happened on my show. That was then Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton belting out a soulful rendition of Heartbreak Hotel on my show, the Arsenio Hall show, that changed presidential campaigning forever. And it was it was a huge moment for him because you know you think about before that, you know the candidates for most younger voters always felt like their dad or their uncle or their grandpa, and now he seemed like well either the really cool uncle or maybe the horny graduate studies teacher that you had. That you <laughs> right. shouldn't have a crush on. <laughs> it didn't but matter. The, but, but it was Turned just out to be both. And, and, you know, since then, a million presidential candidates, they'll do every stunt. They'll go on every show. They'll do, uh, you know, the carpool karaoke or they'll do whatever, you know, because that's just the way it is. But in 1992, I guarantee you, you probably know this better than I do, probably half of his advising team was like, don't do that. You're going to make a mockery of the presidency, putting on sunglasses and playing the saxophone. But it definitely... Well, his old guard would have yeah. said that, but he had guys like George Stephanopoulos and other people that were in his ear that were yes. like, you know, if you really want to go younger and you want to you want to actually dip into a base that doesn't vote, and that's going to be your, your yeah. change here. Because, you know, he had three. That was a three-way race in 1992 in the general election. Uh, Bush and uh, Ross Perot. Right. Right. And then, as we'll all recall, the primary field was very, very, very well-contested, mm-hmm. and he stumbled right out of the block of that. So he needed the help because that's when, you know, all this stuff started coming out. First allegations and he was yeah. the comeback kid when yeah. he got, you know, a little bounce back in the primary. Yeah, and, a, and, and big and, moment for him. Yeah, and definitely, you know, you can't uh, discount the fact that, you know, that was part of his appeal to the African-American audience, you know, that he, that he was very popular mm-hmm. with, you mm-hmm. know, and they're like, look at that, Bill Clinton. Uh, I'll run a couple more by you uh, before we talk then about some current and recent releases. The Cosby Show aired its final episode uh, that year, Ro, and we're never going to see those episodes again, I don't think, at least not for a very long time. Yeah, it'll come back in a different way. I mean, there will be, like we were talking about in the last podcast, everything is going to be a la carte in some way, shape, or form. So there will be grandparents that will want to show their grandkids The Cosby Show, and they will find it somewhere to do that. It's the comedy that changed television forever. It brought America together every Thursday night. Now it's time to come back one last time to say farewell. Your 
invited to witness a special chapter in television history, an event people will be talking about for months to come. The final Cosby Show on NBC tomorrow. Yeah, I'm, you know, listen, we could get into this too. It's like, well, you know, people say to me, could you still watch a Woody Allen movie? Can you still watch a, a Roman Polanski film? And there's no discounting or no, you know, or, or something Harvey Weinstein produced. I mean, we're talking about terrible, horrible, monstrous acts. I think you should make the content available. And if people don't want to watch it, don't watch it. You know, yep. if, you, if you feel like you just can't watch the Cosby show without being sickened, and I completely respect that, then don't watch it. Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin is, of the 20th century, you know, pound for pound, the most successful entertainer of the 20th century. Turns out. Like if you take his whole body yeah. of work and yeah. you take and you divide it by the money that it made in its time and the impact that it had. And by the time he was done, you know, he was thrown out of the United States of America for being mm -hmm. what they thought was a communist. He was marrying very, very young women. His last mm -hmm. wife was, you know, just barely legal when he married her. I mean, it's like these are you have to separate out the art from the artist in a lot of ways. I know that's unpopular to say now because we have to cancel people. And there are so many more people who are artists who now get an opportunity to, you know, get famous fast. But, you know, when you talk about super quality, what Bill Cosby did in his entertainment career mm. was very high end, very popular. He, it was smart. It was funny, especially the Cosby show itself mm -hmm. was a, yeah. a total change in network television. You know, and it was also a different way of showing the African-American experience. He was showing an upper middle class African-American yep. experience yep. In, in a different way than, than you know, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air yeah, or Jefferson's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which right. on their own level also, you know, we're breaking new ground. But this is a whole different level because it was a right. realistic situation comedy with a family that people could identify with. And it wasn't oriented. And aspire to also in a lot of cases. And it wasn't oriented to a, a white world. You right. know, it was yeah. oriented to a, a, a singular life experience that happens in a, in the American experience. It wasn't black versus white, which is what the Jeffersons was, you know, in, yeah. in, in its own way. Yeah. Is yeah. what I'm trying to say there. So just to clean that up and make that perfectly clear. But it was a very different uh, sort of, you know, th their own universe. It was sort of the, you know, Marvel universe, if you will, of of the African-American experience in Brooklyn, in the United States of America in the 1990s and very aspirational. And. It is horrifying, tragic for the fans of Bill yeah. Cosby that he did this to them, you know, that he did this to all these people that you know, were his victims and then broke the hearts of so many Americans. Yeah, it is sure. a really, really tough pill to swallow, but I, time will forget that part. Eventually, or at least be able to figure out a way to compartmentalize it. Uh, let's end, before we go to break, on a, on a much lighter note, Row, in 1992... <laughs> Uh, Seinfeld aired The Contest, one of the most famous sitcom episodes of all time. And when you think about it 30 years ago, the brilliance of The Contest, for people don't know, the four main characters make a bat who can go the longest without masturbating. And they never used that word. They used all these euphemisms, King of the Castle and Master of My Domain, which became T-shirts and coffee mugs. I'll tell you this, though. I am never doing that again. What? You mean in your mother's house or all together? All together. Oh, give me yeah. a break. Right. <laughs> Come on. Oh, you don't think I can? No chance. <laughs> you think you could? Well, I know I could hold out longer than you. Care to make it interesting? Sure, how much? $100? You're on. Wait a second, wait a second. Count me in on this. <laughs> you? Yeah. You'll be out before we get the check. So, you know, let's say 1992 on a high note, 
Congratulations to Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld for putting together one of the most memorable TV episodes of all time when you rewatch it to this day. It still has six or seven laugh out loud moments. Well, there's a transition to Portillo's. Let me tell you about our friends at Portillo's, the finest fast casual experience you're going to have in all of dining. Portillo's, you know, not just hot dogs. Well, you know, when it started in Chicago, people were like, oh, it's a hot dog shop. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. We got, we got Italian beef? Wait. We got Italian sausage? Wait. You got chocolate cake? <laughs> Oh man, it's just uh, it's just one of the great experiences you can have, and I, I think I just said this a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. If you live somewhere where Portillo's is new in California, Arizona, parts of Florida, check it out. Go have the chocolate cake. You get a little slice of home if you're from the Midwest, you're from Chicago, or you're from the East Coast too, because you know that that food will be very familiar to you as street food. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna be so heavy. It's not. Mm. And can I just tell you something? Mm. The best thing about Portillo's mm. is that bun that they put the Italian beef on uh, yeah. that you get now when you get that dipped and it gets all wet. Yeah. That is the perfect piece of bread. Mm-hmm. And you know, carbs be damned. You can do it once a month. You're sure. not gonna hurt anything. You'll be fine. Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S is how you spell that. Portillo's.com. Find a store near you or order online, and you can get it anywhere in the United States of America, Portillo's.com. What not to watch? Uh, You know, we were talking about Netflix and Mike Myers. uh, You know, Ro, the thing about Mike Myers has always been, when he's good, he's a genius, right? Austin Powers, Wayne's World, even the Shrek animated films. But when he's bad, there was like the love guru about 15 years ago. When he does those multiple character things, they either go perfectly great and wonderful or they're the pentaveret on Netflix. In 1347, five learned men realized that the Black Plague was caused by fleas on rats. However, the church believed the plague to be God's punishment, labeling these five men heretics. So they formed a benevolent secret society to influence world events, known as the Pentaveret. I haven't had this much fun since I was at a nudist colony and accidentally backed into a meat thermometer. Uh, Mike Myers, his first time doing one of these multi-character things in like 15 years, and the Pentaveret is this secret society, this cabal, this like Illuminati uh, that's existed for like 500 years, and it's always super rich, super uh, powerful people who control everything behind the scenes. So he plays the Russian oligarch. He plays a Rupert Murdoch-esque type of character. He plays all these different roles, and then he also plays like this local Canadian journalist who tries to expose the Pentaveret. So it's an excuse for the prosthetics and makeup people to have Mike Myers do all these different characters. It's unbelievably terrible. Oh, God. Okay. It's sorry, all God. scatological humor, bodily functions i mean like juvenile stuff i was it was it was actually depressing to watch oh that's the pentaveret on netflix i I have noticed though you are seeing more shows at the moment more television content in which the actors are playing themselves in different 
places of their yeah, life, either, yeah, yeah. either you know, like a multiverse kind of a thing. That Moon Knight, I swear to God, I will pay a million dollars to the first person who can actually explain what happened I, I, in that I, series. I, I, I can't. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's great looking. It's well, fun. Yeah. I mean, there's so much meta stuff. And you mentioned that in the Pentaveret, you also have like Rob Lowe playing himself, Maria Menounos playing herself, but they're playing like, you know, bodier versions of those. Yeah. And that's also kind of been done to death, I would think. Uh, here's another one I was very disappointed in. The Time Traveler's Wife. Remember, that was a huge book about 20 years ago. Yes. The Time Traveler's oh, Wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they made it into a movie with Eric Bana and Rachel McAdams. And the, the, the deal is that this guy can travel through time and his wife has to show wait for him to show up. Time travel. It's not a superpower. It's a disability. It's what's wrong with me. help you Henry sorry I, I don't know Claire so we've met them yes I'm your future wife why is love intensified by absence I've always thought it was problematic Ro, because there are moments where she's eight years old and he's 26 and he's saying that we're going to be married someday and the new version on HBO is a huge misfire they get all, they try to almost make it a romantic comedy. So as the guy's bouncing through time, yeah. and the girl's sometimes eight, sometimes twenty, sometimes thirty, sometimes he sees versions of himself. I, I'm going to tell you about a scene that people are going to think I'm making this up, but this is an actual scene of the time traveler's wife, the 16 year old version of the time traveler dude, figures out a way to go back in time to when he's 16 years old. So there's two of him. Okay. Because he wants to find out what oral sex is like. I had this fantasy when I was 16. So the two, so, yeah. so the two versions of the same guy have sex with each other. Oh, I did not have that fantasy. And, no. and it is the most, one of no. the most bizarre things. This is HBO. It's a it's prestige project. So it's, oh it's going to be on my list of one of the most disappointing and strangest uh, series of the year. Oh, boy. Yeah. Want some good stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, uh, I want to mention quickly Candy. That's out right now. That's uh, Jessica Beale, and this is based on the true story uh, in Texas in 1980, Jessica Beale plays Candy. Melanie Linsky is her best friend. They're like suburban Texas. They got great kids. They got nice husbands. They go to church and everything. And then one day, Candy uh, chopped up her best friend 41 times with an axe oh and claimed self-defense. I wanted to say something to Candy. I am so touched by your generosity. Morning, Candy. You're going to lead us in prayer today. I will. The compassion and friendship you've shown. I was thinking to start up a children's choir. Teach children to be louder. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful idea. I do. You're just a sweetheart. What is wrong? She knows. Hey, y'all. Real life spoiler was acquitted. And it's, but it's really Jessica Biel's really good in this. He's almost unrecognizable because he's got the big glasses and the curly hair. That's the other yeah. prestige thing that they're doing, where you're taking these uh, very attractive yeah, actresses at yeah. certain, you know, right at their Madam District Attorney phase. Yeah. Yep. And yep. 100%. They're, they're just messing themselves up to, Watch this. to, to yeah. show that. They are going to win I, that I goddamn Emmy if it counts. And I think they have a lot of fun. We just had uh, about a month ago the thing about Pam Renee Zellweger mm -hmm. playing the the you know that and people were oh my god she wore a padded suit. I'm like well that's because she wanted to look like the character she's playing. Uh, you're 100 percent right about that. It gives a lot of actors 
a chance. And I think they love the period piece stuff when they, you know, we get to play the carpenters on the stereo and we got shit carpeting and we got uh, <laughs> wood panel everywhere and right, we get to drive true. a Ford, you know, yeah, you can't wagon. Go uh, I got one for you All that right. I, I know you're going to love. This is actually a Netflix original movie. And Ro, you might have not, you might have known about this. I didn't, but this is a, a World War II drama thriller based on a true story. It's called Operation Mincemeat. In five weeks, a hundred thousand British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions, so we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. We have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore. Bearing classified letters. A corpse carrying fake documents. We could quite literally float the documents right into enemy hands. Prime Minister, that's too big a risk. The fate of the world is at stake. So when can it be ready? Well, what say we start with the easy part and find ourselves a corpse? It was made into a movie in the 50s with Clifton Webb, but I was not aware of that, to be honest with you. So here's the story with Operation Mincemeat, 1943. British naval intelligence. Uh, the 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 horrible enemy, the Axis powers, right? Mm -hmm. They are convinced that the Allied forces are going to invade Sicily because they thought that was kind of a weak point that they could get entrance into. So the naval intelligence forces are like, how can we divert them? How can we fool them into thinking we're actually going to invade Greece? So they'll put a bunch of troops in Greece. Here's what they did, and they really did this. They got a dead guy from the morgue who looked like he could be a soldier. They Took photos. They gave him a whole life as a as a Royal Marine officer, mm -hmm. and put secret papers in a briefcase detailing the invasion of Greece, and then dropped him in the sea off of Spain so that the crowds could find. I should, <laughs> and then dropped him in the sea off of Spain so the Germans eventually would find this corpse of this Royal British officer who was really just a, a drifter who had killed himself, and it worked. Spoiler alert: it worked. So the, and they called it Operation Mincemeat because the guy was mincemeat. Oh God! Right. Oh. And uh, Colin Firth plays the the guy who kind of masterminds it. But what I think you'll also find fascinating is the guy who first floats the idea. He had called it Operation. Pardon the expression. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, was a British officer by the name of Ian Fleming. Oh, in real life, yeah. really did. He's so he's in the in the movie, and they're always like. And, and like it's kind of great because Colin Firth is like Fleming. Why are you always working at that typewriter of yours? Well, I might write a novel one day. Oh, Fleming, that'll never happen. You're a military man. But it's it's kind of it's, it's kind awesome. of a great old fashioned thriller with an amazing cast, primarily Colin Firth. So let's 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 tip our caps and salute. Every time you think you've heard all the great stories of heroism out of World War II, here's another one: Operation Mincemeat. That's on Netflix. Roman Roper Podcast, brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Special thanks to our executive producers, Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius, and our long-suffering production director, Demita Menezes. We'll see you next time.